0: Good morning, uh, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll pick up the reading in verse 3. So I dare say that our topic today may be the topic most offensive to the culture that we live in. And in saying that, I do recognize that preachers are prone to hyperbole, where everything's the most offensive, everything's the worst, the best, and so on. Uh, But as I've mulled this over this week, I do think that we'd be hard-pressed to find a truth declaration that's more offensive to our world than the one that I'm about to set forth. And... Christianity has quite a few offensive truth declarations, right? The, the doctrine of hell, I dare say, is not quite as offensive to our culture today. It's uncomfortable, sure. But I do think that maybe an average American does want some, has a favorable idea, is favorable to the idea that certain kinds of people will receive eternal judgment, like the Hitlers of the world, and other heinous criminals. The average American kind of wants uh, eternal judgment for them. The exclusivity of Christ, Jesus is the only way, that's offensive for sure, but like in some way, I think the world is fine to let Christians go huddle up in their own little, and play in their sandbox with their quaint old doctrines that won't hurt anybody. Besides, people who believe those things are really just endangered species and they'll be gone soon enough. Um, But the statement that I propose is more offensive, more controversial, controversial, more of a stumbling block than that is this. God intends all sexual activity to be between a man and a woman within the covenant bond of marriage and any activity outside of that is immoral. That's To the world, offensive, archaic, outdated, naive, but even worse, it's viewed as outright dangerous. As one academic wrote as far back as 1998, he says this, In a religion at enmity with sexuality, such as Christianity, the satisfaction of sexual desires is considered bad and sinful. The permanent production of anxiety and a guilty conscience are the result of it. Of course, we'd contend that Christianity is not an enmity with sexuality, and the satisfaction of those desires is not uniformly bad and sinful, only the improper satisfaction of those desires. But the point is that the Christian sexual ethic is viewed by the world as dangerous and repressive. And this was in 1998, right? No doubt many in the world would add far more vitriol and exclamation points to the same today. Our cultural morality has decayed very quickly in this area. But we must also acknowledge that this is not just an issue for like cultural elites, and it's not not even just among those who happily profess their unbelief. Even among professing Christians, the high call of biblical faithfulness in this area is difficult. Today, many a professing Christian is happy to accept the gospel's message of grace and forgiveness while inventing a form of following Jesus that allows them to pick and choose what aspects of his lordship they will submit to. In effect, they say, I'll take the gospel, I'll take your forgiveness, I'll take the grace, but I'll continue to be my own Lord and Master, and I'll decide what following Jesus looks like for me. But Jesus is either Lord or he's not. And you've either been made new or you haven't. You've either turned from the old and are pursuing the new or you haven't. You can't cling to the old while calling yourself made new. The Bible simply doesn't leave that option open for you. Further, more than once, I've seen professing believers happy to affirm the Bible's teaching on sex when they are in a life situation which makes that easy. But then the unwanted singleness hits or something else makes Christian faithfulness more difficult, and it simply becomes easier to accept compromise in this area. But, Christian, we must call right or wrong, we must call it right or wrong, regardless of whether it's easy or difficult. And sinning because faithfulness is difficult is still sinning. The kingdom of this world says that sex is merely a matter of consent. Yet the kingdom of God holds up a higher, more beautiful standard for sex. As Christians, our story that we were part of the kingdom, our story is that we were part of the kingdom of this world, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but now God has made us alive, created in Christ Jesus to walk according to his kingdom. So Christian, we must ask, does your life and your speech reflect your identity as a child of light? Or are there secret works of darkness that need to be laid bare before the sanctifying light of Christ? In our text, Ephesians 5, 3-14, Paul warns the believers to avoid the kinds of sexual sin which are out of place among the family of God. Instead, they are to walk in the light and help others walk in the light. He calls them to turn from the pervasive influence of the culture and turn to Christ. And today, that's no less countercultural, and we must still heed that call. As God's adopted children, we must leave behind our former darkness, walk in the light, and help brothers and sisters walk in the light. Said differently, the gospel frees us from the darkness of the world and its mangled, dehumanizing views, desires, and actions on the topic of sex. And the gospel frees us to all that is good and right and true on the topic of sex. We must then walk out in that. Now, before I turn to the text, I offer two caveats. A zealous young high school student approached the high school pastor one night after high school worship service where 200 to 300 high school students had gathered. Student A charismatic said, "I have a word from the Lord." The pastor said, "Okay, let's hear it." The student goes on to say, "There are kids here who are enslaved to pornography." To which the high school pastor replied, "And hear me, I'm not making light." He replied, "That's not a word, that's just good math." Sadly, that's correct. But hear me, the same is true for us as we gather this morning. I think it'd be naive to believe that we could gather around 100 people on an, like, here today, almost 100 people. That's an average Sunday for us. I think it'd be naive to think that we could gather that many people and none of us are struggling in this area. As pervasive as this is in our culture, it's just good math to say that the problem is among us this morning. And the Topic and the Sunday morning context doesn't permit me to speak with the same candor, as the same candor uh, this morning as when I spoke about lying or stealing last week. But wisdom wisdom requires that I restrain from pointing to where you may be tempted. But let us pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God this morning to reveal to us any areas where we need to repent. Search your heart this morning, church. As John Owen has said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no crack in your character that the enemy doesn't want to see opened up into a full-blown canyon. All of David's sins with Bathsheba began with just a lustful look. And so I implore us this morning, don't sit back detached Ready to throw stones at the culture? Rather, let us look inward with a spirit-wrought introspection, asking the Lord to cleanse us. And then secondly, and more sensitively, statistically, discussing the topic of sexual sin this morning is harder for some of, among us. Studies show that as many as one in four have been grievously, undeservedly sinned against. And while I am concerned that even mentioning it this morning may cause some of you more pain, I'm more concerned with pretending that the problem of abuse doesn't exist in our world would cause you even more. So in a world gone mad, we need to acknowledge that some of our brothers and sisters silently carry wounds from sins tragically inflicted on them. And if that's you this morning, then let me say this and leave the subject behind. Abuse is an affront to God's image in you. It's not your fault, and the heart of God burns with righteous anger at what has been done to you. We wouldn't callously demand that you disclose that if you're not ready to or if the Lord's already worked to heal you, but... If you ever need the church's help, then know that we will do our best to walk with you towards healing and get you whatever resources you need. So I'll say nothing more of abuse today, and I pray that the Spirit gives you much grace, as I would understand this topic to be painful for you. Let's read Ephesians five, three through fourteen. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. visible. For anything that becomes light, anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would use your word now to search our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use your word now to encourage us. Lord, I pray that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, I pray that your grace would shine forth from this text. Lord, I pray that we would hear the call of your gospel, the call of your grace, that even if we be caught in this, that if we turn to you and repent, the light of Christ will shine on us. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So recall that earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul spent three chapters unpacking what Christ has done for us, accomplishing our salvation. Because of his work on the cross, the Christian is saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. And yet, because of what Christ has done in us, making us new, we do now walk out in good works. We do now walk out in a new life. And broadly, our text today is thematically linked with the passage that we saw last week, where Paul continues to go on and say, put away the old and then put on the new. And now, in this text, he turns to sexual sin. First, I'll give you my outline, first in 5, 3 through 7, Paul details walking in the dark. Then in 5, 8 through 10, which really is the crux of our whole passage, Paul describes walking in the light, and he gives us the gospel motivation for the whole passage. Last, in 5, 11 to 14, we see how the church is to help others walk in the light. So, walking in the dark. Paul opens our passage today with a striking turn from the gentle reminder that he's just given in 5, 1 through 2. In 5, 2, he closed, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, starkly, he transitions and he says, But, and then he lays before the believers two lists of sins that are out of step, and out of place among Christ's church. In the first list, we see a trio of sinful works that must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Remember, the word saints means holy ones. And this unholy trio is out of step with God's holy ones. It's not even proper among saints. So, first, we see the broad term sexual immorality. In older translations, you find this word translated fornication. In reality, the word refers to any and all kinds of sexual sin. It's a very broad term any activity outside of God's beautiful design for sex. Second, we find another broad phrase all impurity. Impurity is itself a broad word, but Paul amplifies it by adding the word all. So it's not just impurity, it's all impurity. So while our fleshly hearts often search for a loophole, Paul really hasn't left one available to you, to us. He uses these broad, encompassing terms to lay forth the sinful works which are not to be named among God's holy ones. Third, Paul lists covetousness, or as some translations say, greed. Here, while clearly the Bible condemns all forms of covetousness, I think it's best to understand Paul here as referring particularly to the sexual coveting. As in the kind named in the Tenth Commandment where, where we read, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. God's holy ones should be content with the spouse he has or has not provided, and they should not pine for another outside of God's design. These sinful works are not to be found among saints. And so Paul here forbids sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness. And I think we do well to remember Jesus' own standard for sexual sin and Jesus' prescription for dealing with that in our lives. Jesus from Matthew five twenty-seven, says this. He said, "'You've heard that it was said, "'You shall not commit adultery. "'But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent "'has already committed adultery with her in his heart.'" And here's the prescription. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus tells us that sin isn't just outward, it's also the inward that is sinful. And he tells us that we should spare no expense Rooting out sin in our lives. Now, this is that part of the sermon where I would normally seek to point to specific ways in which you might be tempted. And yet, I think wisdom requires that we be discreet. So, we can and trust the Holy Spirit to reveal those areas to you. Where are you tempted to immorality? Where are you tempted to impurity? Where are you tempted toward coveting what is not yours? Again, I would remind you that the enemy would take the crack in your life and make it a canyon. We wouldn't tolerate A little bit of cancer in our body? Because we know it only grow. Neither should we ever tolerate a little bit of sin pretending that it'll just stay that way. Every man or woman that later had to look in their children's eyes and break the news, daddy is moving out, first looked themselves in the mirror and said, it's no big deal. So church, spare no expense in fighting sin. Let your freedoms and privacy be limited if so needed. Cut out from your life that which another may be strong enough to handle, but that you yourself are not strong enough for. And students and young people in particular, let me warn you this morning. Don't start down a road that you know is wrong. You may think it easy to turn back, but take it from us who have been there, it's not as easy as you think. Once you start down that road, it only gets more difficult. As others have noted, the strongest man in the Bible, the man after God's own heart, and the wisest man in the Bible all fell to sexual sin. None of us are stronger than Samson, None of us are more godly than David, and none of us more wise than Solomon, and therefore we shouldn't deceive ourselves toying around with sexual sin. Paul then goes on, and he turns to a trio of sinful words, which he says are out of place, not fitting, out of step. And perhaps some of us may find this to be the point where we are convicted— While we are, we think, far from acting out sinfully, still it's easier for our mouths to get caught up in filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. Yet God's holy ones must avoid unholy speech. Again, Paul uses broad terms, leaving no loopholes. The word filthiness connotes ugliness as opposed to beauty. It's taking the beautiful and making it profane. It speaks to that which is disordered and unnatural. And I think we know filthiness when we hear it. Second, he names foolish talk, which speaks to the kind of banter or chatter that might characterize the drunken banquets common around Ephesus. Today, it's the, kind of, the same kind of chatter that we might find, like, excused as, that's just locker room talk, or we might find it in certain work environments and so on. And third, he lists crude joking, or as one scholar translates it, base jesting. It's a kind of sexually charged joking. And again, we know crude joking when we hear it. These kinds of sinful words that are out of place among God's family. And so Paul warns, in effect, watch your mouth. Interesting, and I think you could do well to meditate further on this than I have time to flesh out for us this morning. It's interesting that Paul interjects, instead let there be thanksgiving, How is Thanksgiving the contrast to this kind of unholy speech? Paul is pointing to the reality that a heart flowing with gratitude to God will overflow with holy speech. Because as Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think we do well to meditate further on instead let there be Thanksgiving. The family of God must avoid sinful works and sinful words. And so already, some may be thinking, is it really that serious? Like, come on, man, what's the big deal? Paul anticipated this even among his original audience, and he spends the next two verses driving home the seriousness of this. In verse 5, Paul repeats his first list, but this time it's not just the sins that he's referring to. He's now referring to people who are marked by those sins. He's now, it's, it's more than just the sin, it's the people. So everyone who is sexually immoral, everyone who is impure, everyone who is covetous. Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Is it a big deal? Yes. Because if your life is characterized by these things, then the Bible says that you, that reveals that you don't know Jesus. Paul then repeats the point urging you not to be led astray by those who say this is no big deal. He said, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And sin is always a big deal. Sin is the reason that some will experience the wrath of God. Embracing sin in your life, treating it as if it's no big deal is an affront to the grace of God. Sin is such a big deal that in order for you to escape God's wrath, his wrath was poured out on his son in order for you to be redeemed from sin. So to act like sin is no big deal is to say that the cross is no big deal. To act like sin in the life of the believer is no big deal is to treat God's gracious regeneration of you as nothing. And all of that is a profane affront to the gospel. Paul says, in effect, you have an inheritance. Don't live like those who have no inheritance. He says, you have escaped God's wrath. Don't live like those who are still under it. Sin is a big deal. It's why Jesus died, so that you could be rescued out of it and walk in a new way. So we don't now live as if that is nothing. Instead, we seek to leave the darkness behind and walk out in the light that Christ has purchased for us. Walking in the light, verse 8. Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Note here how Paul is repeating the same formula that he used twice previously in chapter two, where he unpacked our salvation. He said, At one time you were, but now you are. In 2, 1 through 10, Paul applied this to us personally, remember, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You were, but now you are. Likewise, in 2, 11 through 22, you were separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You were, now you are. And so here, Paul reminds us again, you were, by identity, darkness, but now you are, by identity, through and through, light in the Lord. Therefore, therefore, walk as children of light. Live out of your new identity. Don't fall back into the identity that you've left behind. Likewise, Paul reminds us that we have been adopted into his family. We are his children, and as his family, we must reflect his character. We are the body of Christ. Of course, this kind of unholiness is out of place in the body of Christ. Church, we talked about this last week, but note how, again, Paul is rooting The fruit of Christian holiness in the roots of the gospel. He's not saying avoid sin so you can be accepted by God. He's saying avoid sin because you have been accepted by God because of your union with Christ and now respond by walking out in the holiness that he has freed you to. That's the gospel. And we must labor to preach with our lives the same gospel that we preach with our lips. Even in the area of sexual sin and sexually charged speech, we must proclaim a gospel with our lives that says Jesus changes us. Our lives must increasingly reflect what our lips so want to shout. The cross of Christ changes people. Dead men come alive. Slavery to sin is broken. Darkness is left behind and we can run into the light listen, if you don't actually leave sin behind, then your life proclaims another gospel that that says Jesus has no power over sin. And that has no place among God's people. The church must embody the gospel that we preach. Paul goes on and says that the fruit of our salvation should produce in us goodness, righteousness, and truth that then helps us to discern how to live a life pleasing to the Lord. When it comes to sinful works and sinful words, when it comes to the area of sexual sin and sexually charged speech, I think we know exactly what it is. I think goodness, righteousness, and truth in us point it out clearly so that we can discern it. And so it's not locating it that's the problem. Instead, we need to be reminded that it is, in fact, a big deal. We need to be reminded that pleasing God in this area is important. And even if we have crossed boundaries so many times that we don't even remember where they are, even if we've grown so desensitized by coarse joking or any of these other things, we need to commit today to fight all unholiness in our lives. We need to commit today to leaving behind the works of darkness even in areas that can be costly and difficult. Likewise, as his adopted children of the light, we need to commit to helping one another walk in the light. 5:11 Paul repeats the call to avoid sinful behavior. He says, "Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness." And then he expands on it. But instead expose them there are, Paul says, scandalous things that go on in secret that should not be. And the believer and the has a responsibility to call those things out and expose them to the light in a restorative and gracious way. Now listen, here I believe that Paul is referring to calling out this kind of unholy behavior within the family of God. For one, Paul's emphasis throughout this text has been the incongruity with sexual sin among the body of Christ. He says it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He says it's out of place. It's not reflective of those who have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And in 5.7, the church should have no partnership with this. Second, and I think this is key to get, the word here used for exposing, the word used for expose the works of darkness is the same word that we find used elsewhere in connection with the church. So Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There, the word tell him his fault is the same word used here in Ephesians for expose likewise paul uses the word in 1 timothy 5:20 where it's translated rebuke as for those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may so that the rest may stand in fear that's talking about elders by the way third this uh that's deep in the process anyway third Third, this passage closely parallels 1 Corinthians 5, except that in the Corinthian church, the the Corinthian church is in crisis mode by the time Paul's writing to them, Uh, and here he's not writing to a church in crisis mode. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's concern is for the corporate witness of the church, and he repeatedly says that the church should not allow sexual immorality among you. If you read 1 Corinthians 5, you see among you, among you, among you, among you. We see the same thing here in our passage. There's a corporate concern for the church's corporate witness. Then at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, he says, regarding those outside the church that practice sexual immorality, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So there may be times, listen, there may be times in an evangelistic conversation where drawing attention to specific sins is like tactile, tactically uh, productive for the gospel conversation. But by and large, Paul expects that the world is living like the world. He doesn't expect the church to be living like the world. He expects that the church is living different than the world. So I don't believe that what Paul has in view in Ephesians 5, through 13 is exposing the sins of the world. Rather, Paul's concern here is for Christians to help one another in the path of holiness. Verse 13 through 14 offers the gracious, the gracious promise that even the shameful Secret sins can be brought into the light. Look at 5.14 and see, see Christ's grace offered to sinners. Most believe here that Paul is likely quoting an early Christian hymn, and it appears to be a reference to both Isaiah 26.19, also Isaiah 61-2. through 2. As it's used here, the first two lines, as you see here in 14, the first two lines say the same thing. It's a parallel couplet. And in Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians 5, this language, sleep, refers to, if you want to look later, Romans 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, this sleep language is used for those who are caught in sin. And so here, this is the gracious promise to those caught even in secret, shameful sin. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a gracious promise to even those caught in secret, shameful sin. If you, Christian, if you will wake up and turn from your sin in repentance, then Christ will shine on you. It's a reminder of the gospel, that your sin is no obstacle for your Savior. Even that sin which you commit as a saint, you bring it to the light, you confess it, and Christ will do a work of grace in you, giving you victory over it. That's amazing. Think on it. This is true for all kinds of sin, Paul here is dealing with sexual sin, but it's no less true for any other kind of sin in our life. We have so richly had his grace lavished on us. But even spite of this lavish grace, we all find times in our lives where we respond to the gracious new life by falling back into the old ways. That's wicked to be recipients of such a merciful rescue and yet walk out in darkness. And we may think that he sits above wagging his fingers saying, after all I've given you, but no, the call is to wake from your slumber, rise from your dead ways, and let the light of Christ shine on you again, continuing to root out sin from your life. On your own, you will make no progress. But by Christ in you, you can have victory. Jesus shines his light into darkness, and Jesus makes dead men alive. Church, what mercy. What grace. But hear me this morning. Don't fight your sin alone. Christ's light shines through Christ's means. One of his means is the body of Christ that can walk with you in a gracious, restorative way, bringing accountability and bringing the grace of the gospel to you over and over again. Don't think that you will fight this fight outside of Christ's design. You're not wiser than him. Christ's light comes through his body, the church. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, hear me, your supreme need is not to go from here and try to stop acting out in all kinds of sinful ways. Your supreme need is to recognize that apart from Christ, you are dead in your sin and you need Jesus to make you alive. You need to turn in faith and repentance and let him make you into a new creation that is freed from the works of darkness and freed to walk out in the new life. Until then, you have no hope no inheritance, you pay the penalty yourself for your rebellion, and you are not set free from sin to walk out in this. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, then you need to be reminded that the gospel that saves you necessarily changes you. You've been rescued from darkness, and so now you must walk in the light. You were dead, but now in Christ you are alive. So walk out in the freedom from sin that Christ has bought for you. Put your former darkness behind you and walk out in the light. Run to him with any sin that you've been convicted of this morning and let the light of Christ shine on you. And then do the same for your brothers and sisters in the church family. Remind them of the grace that has changed us and continues to change us. Encourage them, spur them on towards greater Christ-likeness. Let us be a family that represents our Father well. Let's pray. Father, I do ask by your spirit that you would convict us of any areas that we need to repent of and lay before you. Father, I do ask also that uh, you would give us courage. There'd be areas that we need to repent of, that you would give us courage to bring that to a brother or sister that can hold us accountable. God, I do also ask that we would be a church that cares seriously about holiness, but also cares seriously about your grace. So Father, I do pray that you would use your word to do your work in us this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.